You said persuasion wouldn't work, and it didn't. So now we use force. Force? Yes, of course. Lawmakers, lawbreakers, let us fight them all. Why not? And welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 16, where we are talking about Shadow. Shadow. Yes. So this was first broadcast on my dad's birthday, in fact, on the 16th of January, 1979. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Written by Chris Boucher. We'll talk a bit about that in a moment. Directed by Jonathan Wright Miller. This is the first of two episodes he does. He does this. He's back for Horizon in a couple yeah, of weeks. That's right. And this received ratings of 7.6 million. So yeah. relatively steady from the 7.9 that Redemption got, which is good for a second episode to yeah. not, not have that drop. So that's, that is impressive. Now, this is obviously the first episode that is not written by Terry Nation. Mm-hmm. So it's important to highlight here, that means we get to the end of 14 episodes of a sci-fi series in a row written by one person, mm-hmm. which at the time actually was a record. And it actually just showed just how unusual it was, particularly in well, television at that time, to mm. write that many in a row. And it's actually a record that would stand for about 20 years because Joe Michael Straczynski mm. is the person who beat it with Babylon 5. And for those who actually care, JMS equaled 14 episodes in a row with Point of No Return. He beats <laughs> it with Seven Dreams. And he then goes on to write... 58 in a row. Bloody hell. Ending with Secrets of the Soul. And Richard, do you know the author that wrote the next one that broke his uh, run? I'm going to say something like Neil Gaiman. It was Neil Gaiman. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) So it was Neil Gaiman with that cool um, Day of the Comet one. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, pretty impressive record from Terry Nation that we'll give a bit of a shout out to there. So this is the first broadcast Chris Boucher's episode. Yes, not the first one he wrote. No, so that's Weapon, and we'll talk about him and his style a bit next week as well. It's worth mentioning, though, that Shadow, I think, is very much part of a pair with Weapon, because they're the sort of the two Chris Boucher episodes you get at the start of the season. Yep. They're very similar. They're on a tape together. They're on a tape together, I was about to say, <laughs> yes. They are very similar in that sort of tone, because there's a very clear Chris Boucher tone yeah, going on here, so it does feel like a pair. And it also does feel like a bit of a new tone for the show, I think. Particularly when you follow on from Redemption, which, although it was a Terry Nation episode, we said last episode had a very, very much had a new style. Like, it looked like there was more money. The costumes were different. The that, style was very different, yes. Yeah. And now you've got a very different writing style as well. So mm. it, it sort of adds that feel of a new season going on. But we will be talking more and more about Chris Boucher as we go on, as you would expect. But before we go any further, Richard, I'll be taking us through this one. Yep. So let's just start off with your initial thoughts. As we said, look, there is a very noticeable difference in the tone or, or feel of this one, and that will continue across the series, obviously, as we get new writers constantly coming along. This, I think, is arguably the moment Chris Boucher perhaps starts to take control of the series. Yes. He's now, obviously, not so much having to revise Terry Nation's work or do anything with it. He's now actually setting the series in the direction he really wants it to go in. Terry Nation, obviously, is still writing for Blake 7, although he does only contribute two more scripts this season. Yes. So Chris Boucher now really is driving the direction of the show. But did you enjoy it? I did really enjoy it. It's one I don't think that made a big impression on me when I saw it as a kid. 
I think it's probably a bit too deep. And look, it wasn't on a compilation tape, and I didn't have it, so look, it's one I hadn't seen for years when the VHS tapes came out. But coming back to it as an adult, I think it's great. There's a lot going on. Everybody gets something to do, which in some ways is a bit of a first. <laughs> um, and, and actually, look, even something like Kelly's telepathy is actually used for something meaningful this week. So no, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm going to echo most of your thoughts there, particularly what you said about not getting much out of it as a kid. As you say, it wasn't on the compilation tape, so it was one of those new ones that we came to mm. when they were released, and I, I saw it for the first time. VHS copies were circulating, and I would have been sort of 12 or 13. And yeah, at that age, this just I was just bored. Mm. Like, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. It was lots of people talking very cleverly at each other. There were no cool spaceships. But as you say, coming back to it as an adult, I've really grown to love this. Mm. It is a hugely fun script. The concepts are very good. They're very clever. They, they intertwine, and that's really yep. good for the episode. It's very difficult when you're trying to do a podcast about it. <laughs> the positive is very much this is Chris Boucher's first couple of scripts, and he's very clearly putting his all into this and making it a really good episode. The negative is that it's one of Chris Boucher's first couple of scripts, and I really get the feeling he's sort of spent the last year just making lots of notes of all these cool things he wants to include when yes, he gets to write one. This is now what this is what I want to do when I finally get a chance. And as a result, this is just bursting with ideas. Weapon next episode is oh, bursting with yeah, ideas. I, I think probably next week's is worse, but yes, there there is a lot happening in this one. There is a lot happening. I think he pulls it off here. Mm. Just. It is bursting, though. There is the scene, unfortunately, at the end where we have to explain what's yes. just been happening. But... Yes, there is, because there just isn't time to kind of get it yep. through. And, and this is probably a theme I think we're going to come back to when we talk about Weapon, but we'll have no spoilers. But look, it's great fun. It's fun to watch. And it's a different look at the Federation. Again, mm. you get the feeling Chris Bowger's been sitting there script editing Terry Nation's views of the Federation going, I now want to do my take. Yep. So, having said we both enjoyed it, I think we're yep. going to have a lot of fun chatting about it. We'll now move into the episode. So I've sort of divided this up into various different bits and segments and themes. Okay. And we'll work through it sort of in, in that way because this isn't a very neat, linear, single plot. No. It isn't even a clear A plot and a clear B plot. One's on the ship and one's on the planet. This is just stuff going on all over the place, intersecting. Yes. And it's very cleverly done, but as I say, not easy to talk about in a <laughs> podcast. But we'll crack on. So the first topic I want to talk about is just this style and feel of it what can we say here other than it is very much less a terry nation space adventure and it's much more of a thriller you're also really getting probably as well as his take on the federation and whatever you're also really getting what chris boucher wants to do with the characters mm. as well good point we mentioned a minute ago look he gives everybody something to do but they've sort of all got more personality now he's he's obviously been as you said, probably making notes through the first season. This is how he sees each of these characters progressing, and this is what he wants to do with them. Yeah, that's exactly right. You get to see the way that he plays with the dialogue. He's clearly got a couple of favourite characters that he gives a lot of lines to. Yes. And this is something we'll be talking about again, perhaps more next episode than this one. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as you say, interestingly here, the Federation are very much put into the background mm. insofar as it's not Pursuit Ship's it's not Federation guards in the Federation uniform. It's not Travis and Serverland. No. It's a very different part of it. And in that way, it sort of feels a bit like some of the Star Wars movies. Even something, dare I say, like Solo, which is very much about a different look at, you know, it's, it's not the Empire with all their ships and Darth Vader. This is just what it's like living under the Empire mm, yep. in a bit of a dump of a planet. Being a citizen. Yeah, yep. yeah. And so I do like that. Visually, 
how did you find it? Look, the Liberator set is still the Liberator set, and we said it's been redressed from last time. I thought they've taken a real time to set up Space City. Mm -hmm. There's a very nice model shot when they come in. They actually take the time to give it a bit of a sense of scale in that. The characters walk past the window and you just see the Liberator very slowly appear in the window as it approaches the station. Yeah, they've made a real effort here, probably more than ever before, Mm. to make the model work actually look like sets. Yes. So you've got that shot of a portion of Space City. You know, you can see all the crates or the cargo hold with it. And then you actually cut down and the sets look like that. Yes. So again, you've got this sense of scale, just like you say. Yeah. I mean, look, Zondar is is very much obviously the planet quarry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. even so, look, as what it's meant to be, it looks like a desolate sort of desert wasteland. Yeah, for for something that's filmed in the UK. Yes. It's it's pretty well done. (laughs) As you said, the models are good. What's also very interesting stylistically is the opening is a very different sort of opening. Probably something we haven't had since the way back. I mean, even Mission to Destiny, although you get that sort of opening prologue, it's very spacey and very Blake 7 mm. Whereas this one, it is not recognisably Blake 7. We're not on the Liberator. We're not recognisably in the Federation. No. You've, you've got these sort of gangster people with different makeup and costumes mm. sort of talking to each other. And there's a real sense of, hang on, what, what's going on here? This is different. And then just when you're sort of going, have I turned on the wrong channel or something, the Liberator, as you say, just slowly comes into the background. And that's a nice way to bring Blake and the team into the episode. Yeah. I also just want to mention a couple of other points in general. The guest cast, I think, is very good here. And the guest characterization is very good. Lago is a very cool character, yes, I reckon. Yes, he is. And this is something I think we're going to come back to over the next 40 episodes, which is the Chris Boucher character. Mm. And, and he has some very good characters. Lago is very much the first one of those. Interestingly, the first shot we have of the Liberator flight deck is actually set up very Trek, in that the crew are all doing stuff at their consoles. And Blake is not just sort of sitting at the side or standing. He is sitting centre in those couches yep. in what if you saw a Star Trek episode, would be the captain's chair. Yes, the command position. Yes. Yes. And that's a very interesting (laughs) way to show Blake coming in. So we mentioned Largo, who is, I think, a highlight of this episode. Yep. So let's talk a bit more about the Terra Nostra. We'll discuss them in sort of a a meta sense when we get to look at the 1970s. Mm -hmm. No surprises there, I think. We get some great dialogue here to really set them up. For example, there's... Nobody steals from the Terra Nostra. We're innovators. You're dead. As well as the whole bit about the satellite and, you know, Villa gives us the explanation. So, that is Space City. Also known as the Satellite of Sin. By whom? Me. It had to be someone of limited imagination. Pick a pleasure. Any pleasure. And you'll find it for sale in Space City. If you've got the money. But we have, we have. And if you can stomach doing business with the Terra Nostra. We're going to use them, Gan, not do business with them. A subtle distinction that escapes me for the moment. Yeah, complete with A1 comeback there. But those sort of lines give us this idea of it being this mafioso criminal gang. Yeah, it is very well set up. I mean, even the opening scene, it's very obvious Beck and Hannah have obviously done a job in inverted commas for Largo and their payment is that Hannah will get her fix of shadow. Yeah, and this is interesting because without any exposition scene whatsoever, we never actually have it explained what Shadow is in terms of the drug. No. We get an explanation as to how you get Shadow, Mm. but nobody ever says it's a drug, you take it this way, it does this to you. 
just throughout the dialogue, you get this sense of, oh, it must be a drug. It's clearly addictive because the, the, yep. way, the way that Hannah begs for it, she clearly needs it. Yes. And Largo obviously gets his moment to really emphasise, I am in control. As he says, I own you, dreamheads. Yes. Then later on, you see the effects that he dies. Mm. So just, just through characters interacting naturally, you understand what's going on here. You're right. A lot of the stuff about Shadow is inferred. I mean, it appears to obviously taking it for an extended period will obviously kill you. But they do seem to make the point that once you're addicted to it or once you're hooked on it, if you don't take it, you'll die too. It is a death sentence and it shows all the negative effects without ever crossing into, you know, tonight on a very special episode of Blake 7. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it never starts to moralise. It's just like this is a drug and it's not good because it kills you. Move on. Which is good. It's mentioned that possession carries a mandatory death sentence, which Mm -hmm. again is interesting in in that it shows there is still a sense of uh, society morals in the Blake 7 universe, which again comes back to a theme we've talked about, Richard, of there being an educated middle class that cares about, you know, we don't do drugs in our society, we don't have criminals in our society. No, and they even make the point later in the episode, the president, when he announces the death penalty, comes out and makes this great speech that Shadow is this scourge. It's the single biggest threat facing humanity. And then you get another of those Chris Boucher lines when they discover Petey's dead body, which again, he takes a moment, which could be just exposition, and actually makes it into a little quip. You. It's too late, remember. You're already dead. Like Petey. Must run in the family. So let's bring Blake into the conversation here. His plan is that he wants Largo as a go-between between him and the Terra Nostra. And he wants to hire the Terra Nostra basically as heavies. Well, he wants to infiltrate, obviously, their Earth-based network. He wants information, he wants men, resources, whatever it is. And that Largo, clearly, because he has a connection to Jenna, Largo is therein. And yes, again, we don't go into long, detailed expositions about exactly what Blake's want to do. We're sort of left to our imagination, whilst at the same time being relatively clear the direction Blake wants to go in. Interestingly, while he's negotiating with Largo, he leaves Gan on watch. Now, given Gan still has a limiter, it may not be referenced, but he does still have a limiter, what would he actually do if somebody came up? (laughs) Well, probably what does happen, actually. (laughs) Well, that's right. It's It's a really, really odd decision. Interestingly, as well, in that scene is... Blake lets Avon do the negotiating. Mm, well, he just sits back and watches. He does. And Avon is you know, very much getting into this. Avon clearly thinks this is not the way to go about this. But once he gets in there, he works out very quickly that this is going nowhere. Because Largo gets to play the, oh, come on, I'm just a legitimate businessman. The Terra Nostra don't exist. They're just a myth. Yes, and Largo is sort of interested in the jewels, but clearly is not desperate for cash. No. And isn't going to beg for the cash or do a deal for them. Look, the Terra Nostra doesn't exist. Believe me, it's a a phantom. A A shadow? A myth. A legend. It's a legend a lot of people believe in. And yet you know it doesn't exist. Why are you so certain? I actually think that scene's probably the best written in the episode. It's Mm. really funny. Some of the interaction between Largo and Avon is really good. uh... Why do I feel as if I'm on trial here? Why do I feel as if you should be? You have to say, Blake's plan is actually fairly naive. Just wandering, wandering around Space City going, well, you're from the Terra Nostra. <laughs> I want your help. Yes, it is very naive. And I think that plays to this idea of Blake being a fanatic now to the point where he doesn't actually see anything beyond his tunnel vision. 
he says at the start, obviously, look, it's an open secret that it's run by the Terran Nostra, but the idea that he, an outsider, could just walk into this place and basically just be put immediately in touch with the local crime lord really is, is yeah, incredibly naive. Yeah, it, it is, and it does play to that idea of Blake as a very middle-class person. On yes, it. well, of course, and we do get a discussion of that a bit later through Villa, but... We do. There's, again, a lovely little moment. I don't know whether it was scripted or just from the direction or that the actors worked it out, but after Avon's given up negotiating, he goes to sort of put the jewels in his pocket and Blake just reaches out and doesn't even say anything. He's just like, give them here. Yeah. Avon's like, you're all right. Yeah, he gives him that frustrated, fine. It's <laughs> <laughs> really well played. That was um, really funny. And it comes again after another one of those exchanges between Avon and Ligo where he says, A beautiful stone. I'm a bit of a collector in a modest way. I could make you an offer. They have a sentimental value for me. Oh, family heirlooms. No, I'm just sentimental about money. (laughs) And, of course, it ends with the whole... Amateur. A pro keeps it simple. Yes, well, again, they've sort of gone in there with this convoluted plan that they're constantly beaming everything back to Gan. and and this idea that they wouldn't notice Jenna standing there very unnaturally holding the communicator. Yeah, it is Blake... Being naive, you're right. But but Mm. in such a way that I don't think it diminishes the character. No. Again, probably moving in towards Blake's tunnel vision and everything. I mean, Blake makes the point here, he only cares about Earth. He's Mm. not interested anywhere else because that's where the Federation is and that's that's what I'm going after. And we will see that progression, obviously, across the season as Blake gets more and more wrapped up in, in destroying the Federation. Yeah. And again, this idea that Blake is basically a middle-class terrorist mm. who's sort of doing his best with what he's got compared to Largo, who is a by-day criminal and is used to plots and is used to deceit, so he knows exactly what's going on. He knows you keep this stuff simple and all the rest of it. Yes, who has worked his way up through the organisation. And to steal a quote from a later episode, he didn't take any political shortcuts. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, we, we see more of that. And just to talk further about the Terra Nostra as it goes on in the episode, you get to see the chairman of the Terra Nostra, who's got his cool little spider, which, again, yep. without it being mentioned in the script or without anybody doing anything, it's just this moment of, this is a bit of a badass dude, he's got a pet tarantula. And it's very clear Largo is on his last chance. There's no ifs or buts. I mean, he's not even engaging with Largo. It's like, you clean this up, or yes. And the chairman is clearly in a very relaxed position of power. He doesn't need to enforce his power with Largo. He doesn't need to sort of stand no. over Largo. He's just in charge. And again, so you get more of that Chris Boucher dialogue. I thank you for your confidence, Chairman. Largo, that is too small a thing to thank me for. And of course, the end of the Terra Nostra plot is the Enforcer doing the double cross, and we find out there that they use Shadow as a tracker, which again shows what a professional organisation this group is. Yes. Although it is noted that is Largo's idea, obviously, not something that they just do. No, and again, it shows that Largo is a very talented and effective criminal. Mm. He's just run out of luck. Yes. Well, you do sort of wonder, has the Enforcer killed him, basically because he's just decided this is my opportunity to advance and I'm just going to take matters into my own hands? Or is it a case that he's secretly been on the phone to the chairman the chairman's just gone, right, that's it, tidy this up. Yeah, I certainly took it as the former. Yeah. Because there is that little bit where Largo sort of pretends that he's let them go so he can track them. Yes. And he's sort of bluffing and the enforcer's like, I hope you didn't use me. I yes. wouldn't want to be used. And he's like, you're, you're just a bit of muscle. And, and so I think at that point, yeah, you're right, whether he's sort of rung the chairman and gone, hey, chairman, guess what? Yeah. <laughs> or he's killed him and then done it, I don't know. But 
But it does end with that shot, and this freaked me out when I saw it as a kid, where you just see Largo dead with just that yellow slime down his mouth yes, or something. Yes, just lying there, yes, he's been poisoned or whatever. Yes. Yeah, um, and again, it's never explained. You just know, ooh, that wasn't pleasant. No. So appropriately, given that we're recording this in the middle of the thunderstorm, I want to talk about the desert world of Zondar. Yes. Now, it's specifically mentioned and indeed shown with a very bad backdrop that Zondar has two sons <laughs> and no nightside. Do you reckon that's a reference to Tatooine in Star Wars two years earlier? Possibly. I mean, look, you could probably go a bit further and say the, the outfits the crew wearing, particularly Avon and Blake, yeah. are a bit reminiscent of Luke Skywalker's Actually, that's a good costume. Point. That's a good point, yeah. So, yeah, there probably is a bit of that, maybe. Yeah, it's just something that occurred to me going on from there. I mean, mm. there's, there's no copyright that Twin Suns has to be a Star Wars reference, but no. it would not surprise me if it, if it was. <laughs> Even on the approach, Avon is very, very wary about what's going on. Again, Blake has got that tunnel vision, that task focus. I think the implication is Avon has clearly worked out or just about worked out really what the truth must be. I mean, he does make that thing about, well, maybe we already know, which sort of gives that moment of realisation from Blake as well. But I think Blake is so obsessed. Blake really wants to hurt the Terra Nostra because they've tried to capture him and whatever. Yes, whereas Avon is being a lot more alert He notices that there are no defences. He notices that they have found this planet very, very easily. And if they can, why couldn't the Federation? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, as you say, he's sort of working it out. As you mentioned earlier, we are back on planet Quarry. (laughs) Although it's at least got those cool little shadow things. Yes. One point that I found really interesting is that when Blake, Avon and Jenna go down to the planet and they find the moon disks Mm. and they have the whole, oh, these are moon disks, they're sort of like, well, that's nice, let's move on. Mm. And again, it's a real contrast to something like Star Trek or even a Red Dwarf or something where, where it would be very much about, well, let's have a look at this and let's study this life Yes, form. let's spend a minute or two actually talking about them. Yeah, it's just, yeah. well, that must be a moon disc. Yes. Cool, let's move on. And I suppose in some ways that is a, a character thing because Avon immediately just writes them off. They're just plants, yes. basically. He says they're supposed to move and they're supposed to sing and whatever, and he, he just really loses interest in them pretty much immediately. <laughs> he does. And Blake is very much, okay, that's really cool, but... What we want to do is over there. Yes, and it is Jenna who actually has the moment of interest. And she's the one that says... Prized by collectors. People collect odd things. Look what you ended up with. <laughs> As we progress on Zondar, Avon's the one that first spots and indeed kills a guard. Then goes sort of one-on-one with the other one up the hill and, and gets his macho... Next, please. I actually had that under my cool line because he is clearly very pleased with himself <laughs> at that point. Bring him on. <laughs> <laughs> And a very good example of Chris Boucher writing Avon in that very Western hero style. Yes. We cut back afterwards there to... Now, I don't know whether this is a directorial choice or it's a cut they had to make for time, but we are literally halfway through a fight scene between the three Liberian yes, crew right, and a bunch pond. of guards. Yes. Yeah, by that pond. Like, literally, as we cut back to them, there's a guard being thrown into the pond. Mm. Now, I don't know whether that was a fully staged fight and the director had to cut it, mm. or whether he said, look, we haven't got the time or the money to do a full fight, yep. and very cleverly cuts it in so you go, well, kind of like Shakespeare, you know, where Shakespeare sort of did the, there's a really big battle happening right over there. <laughs> <laughs> that classic stage yep. trick. It is that direction of, but we've sort of cut to the end of it to save you time. Mm. So that's left to your imagination. But what we see of it is, again, a very well-staged fight scene. And again, even though it is filmed in a quarry, 
they make use of the ponds, they make use of the angles, they make use as they did in Time Squad of the three dimensions of the quarry. So you actually have Avon going up and down and all yep. the rest of it, so it's not just a flat scene. Which, mm. I mean, where else are you going to film a desert planet in Britain? Yes. So I like that, but it's very tightly cut, and again, it's much less than I remembered it being. Mm. It actually really is only two scenes. Yeah, it is. So I guess to round out the Zondar discussion, the idea here is that they've put down the, the, their tent pegs. Um, <laughs> their the, the space sen- tent pegs. Yes, the sensors uh, <laughs> that allow the Liberator's guns, obviously, to train on parts of the surface, any, anything in the circle, mm. so to speak. And the idea clearly is they're going to burn the entire area. Yes. Which seems a bit harsh on the poor moon discs. Particularly given the role they're going to play in the next bit we're going to talk yes. about. Yes. It is a very harsh ending. <laughs> Maybe we'll reflect on that when we get to the end of the episode. But yeah, I, I quite like the stuff on Zonda. And I think it's important because it does take what is a very well-written talky episode, mm. but is a talky episode, and it does add some actual action and some film into that. But the dialogue, as we said at the top, all serves a purpose. The dialogue is actually there to bring the plot forward, with the exception probably the final scene. It's not just a big exposition dump. Oh no, it's very good dialogue, and I enjoy mm. the dialogue, but... I think that if we hadn't had this action stuff down on the planet, yes. it would have been a much drier episode than it actually turned out to be. Mm. So I now want to talk about some more of the plot, but also some of the characters, and in particular mm. we'll go with Callie and... She really, let's face it, gets an entire plot to herself. Yes, she does. Again, it meets very neatly with the other parts of the plot. It it does, but you notice the Kelly plot really doesn't involve anybody else. She actually basically saves the universe single-handed almost. Yes. It does interact in terms of the resolution to her plot is a key part of the other plot. Mm. But you're right, the characters don't cross over. No. But the first thing that Kelly gets to do is actually just a moment to prove that she's not stupid. Because... We get that whole conversation between her and Villa, where Villa is trying to con her into letting him go yes, across. Yes, that's right. And she, clearly, from the moment he starts, has worked him out. Mm. And she's just stringing him along. She has no intention of playing along with him. And she very clearly calls him out. You know, your next step was going to be, you are going to ask me to teleport across so Blake could have the benefit of your experience. And I've got to give credit to Michael Keating in that scene, because in a scene where Villa could have been really dumb he at least maintains the pretense the whole way through. Mm. And he's actually quite convincing when he does the, oh, I hadn't thought of that. But it's a good idea. (laughs) I mean, in the hands of a lesser actor, that would have been a very cliched moment. And he actually pulls it off. And once again, we've got Michael Keating really lifting the script quite well. Mm. Now, Villa goes across to Space City, and we'll talk about that in a moment, because I want to keep on Callie at the moment. Yeah. Because, again, her next interaction is her showing that she's not stupid again. Because you get the bit where Blake is being interrogated by Largo. Yep. Largo, and again, Largo is given the chance to show he's not an idiot. All these characters get to act with intelligence yeah. in Chris Pratt's script. Because when Blake's trying to bluff him, Largo actually does see through the bluff and actually tests the bluff. And it's only because... Kelly's a telepath. Kelly's a telepath. Yeah. They pull it off. Blake is clearly doesn't want to show that he has teleport facilities. Mm. He's bluffing, he has a shuttle. And yeah, Largo would have actually seen through... Blake very easily. Yes. Which again gives the villain a real credibility here. Mm. But he does see through that, so we get to actually use Kelly's telepathy here for a genuine plot point as well. Yes, that's right. Now, it is a piece of foreshadowing. I was going to say an unsubtle piece of foreshadowing, mm. but it actually does work in with the plot. It's not 
here we are foreshadowing Callie's telepathy. You know, it's not like Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, like, hey, Harry, do you know what a port key is? Sure, do you know what foreshadowing is? <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite that bad. But I think it is good that we get to see Callie use her telepathy mm. in an engaging way. Yes, actually for something. Actually yes. for something, yes. And then she gets to threaten the station to shoot down some gunships. Well, and that's a really good little scene. Yes, because she's not ruthless enough to just shoot them down. But she's not soppy enough that she's like, well, you had a warning, let's go. Mm. You know, bring it on. Yeah, that's right. And, and again, it's nice to see the power of the Liberator where it's just like, well, okay, we'll just shoot down that gunship. Yes, because actually in a lot of the earlier stories, their main thing they do with the Liberator is use it to run away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about a lot of it. Yeah, whereas here it really is quite effective. Mm. Going on at the same time, we have all this weird stuff with Orac. Mm. Now, we'll talk more about Orac's capacities when we get to our regular segments. But Orak has now started talking in the third person, yeah. and he's talking to Kelly, and he's being all sinister and all spooky. He takes over Zen, but you have the moment where Zen says, you know, the one called Orak is yes. not concerned for the safety of the Liberator. Yes, Zen gets to be very pissy there, mm. and very um, prophetic, which is appropriate. But as we mentioned in our Orak discussion, the way that Orak the computer can just switch Zen off instantly mm. is a really effective way of upping the stakes and showing how powerful this thing is because we've come to think of Zen Liberator as this massive, awesome ship yep. that can do things that the, you know, other technology can't. And when Orac's just like, no, I'm just going to turn you off, mm. it's like, wow, that is actually quite a powerful moment. We then get the bit where they start to interact telepathically and he captures her mentally. Mm. And this is 1979, so how do you capture someone mentally on screen? The way they do it with her physically being inside Aurac, it's, look, it's not the best visual, but it's a very clever way of showing it. And as the audience, you get instantly what's going on. And it's very creepy and very effective. Yes. Plus you have the whole thing. Aurac, obviously, or the entity, whatever it is, acknowledges that Callie is a threat. So the inference is to isolate her. So we have the whole thing where clearly she's trapped in her own psyche, basically, having a battle of wills with Aurac. Mm, mm. She's in a vegetative state as far as the rest of the crew are concerned. Now, interestingly, the entity slash Aurac does actually let her go, where it sort of scares her to go off the ship, and clearly it's Aurac remotely activating the teleport to get her to there. Yes, clearly it is. I mean, she has that moment where she breaks. I mean, Hannah says, you know, she didn't even see me. She just ran straight over the top of me yeah. and just straight down to the teleport and off the ship. And clearly, I, well, you would assume at that moment, Aurac clearly thinks it's one. Yes, so was your interpretation there that the entity thinks it's broken her, so it gets her off the ship out of the way yes. and she's sorted? If she runs and she gets off the ship, it reduces the threat. So yeah. now there is nothing that can stop the bridge from being completed. Yes. So at this point, we sort of learn that something else is going on. We learn that something's controlling Aurac. It talks about the bridge to come into the dimension, and we get the exposition later, but we kind of work out what's going on. Now, at this point as well, Aurac's key becomes electrified, so it can't mm -hmm. be switched off. That's also very convenient in that it lets us kill Hannah. So we've dealt with that character because... Yes, without having to have her go through the shadow withdrawal. Yeah, so this is a very effective way of ending her plot without having to go through and deal with all that. Closing that loophole. Closing yeah. that loophole, absolutely. <laughs> it is a very neat fix. But Kelly has worked it out. She's worked out that Aurac's carrier waves are the mm. bridge and that's how mm. this entity thing's coming through. And then with the help of the telepathic moon disks is able to defeat it. And yes, she's no longer key. alone and obviously they combine, boost her power and whatever. Yeah, I probably would make the slightly pedantic point. I think removing the key is perhaps more teleportation rather than telekinesis, but 
It is the big conceit of the episode, but it is a nice resolution. And everything works, everything comes together, all the plots come together. It's very mm. cleverly done, with the exception that there isn't any ability in those last scenes for anybody to stop and actually explain in dialogue what's going on. No. So, as you said, we do get that sort of three-minute Scooby-Doo ending of, so, just so that anybody wasn't following, this is what happened. And, look, we say that this is a bit of an exposition dump, and it is, but Chris Boucher still does his best to try and make it sound natural, Mm. to the point you even have been the members of the crew reaching conclusions at different times or adding little bits to it. For example, you get that bit where somebody points out that there wouldn't be enough power from the Liberator to complete the bridge. Yep. And Avon says, well, no, the ship blowing up would have been enough to get it across the line. Yeah. And Blake goes, oh, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. And again, a moment that is very much, oh, I hadn't thought of that, that a lesser actor could have made sound quite silly. Gareth Thomas does in a very understated, natural way. Mm. And look, it makes it all work. It's the one, I think, weak point in this episode is that exposition scene at the end. Yeah. But I don't see how you could have done it any other way. I want to have a brief discussion now about Blake. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned a couple of times in this discussion about how fanatical he's getting. He yep. says overtly, Earth is all I'm interested in. And this is actually a direction that I think we're going to see him go further down for the rest of this season. Mm-hmm. There's also some very professional or arguably callous moments that we get from Blake here. There's the moment where Villa is obviously very keen to come along and see what Space City looks like. Yes. And Blake is very overtly professional into shutting him down and it is it's like the manager and the, the workman like it's just no you're yep. not doing that that would potentially interfere with the mission so yes. sorry that's not happening and if this was season one there might even have been that a sort of jokey interaction where blake tries to make a joke of it here he doesn't even engage with villa he's just that's not happening and walks off and then later on obviously when villa has gone down to the planet he obviously comes back to the ship in the six minutes between Kelly threatening the um, space city control and them actually being released from Largo you know he has that really hard moment talking of Villa how long before he comes round? oh several hours and he won't feel much like laughing when he does oh I'll guarantee that (laughs) (laughs) that is very full on actually yes it is Um, but the really callous moment that Blake gets here is where Beck and Hannah having basically rescued him from Largo Mm. he's very happy just to teleport out without him yeah you're not part of my plan. Look, I realise that you'll probably be killed by the Terra Nostra, but oh well, bye. Yeah. And had he not needed their help to get Villa sorted from whatever depravity or drugs or whatever he'd done... Yes, well, you, you sort of get that inference that he's gone back to the ship, thought, oh, hang on, actually, they might be useful. Well, no, I think he, more than that. He goes back to the ship, he finds Villa just in, like, some completely stupefied state. I mean, this is Blake, and he's, yeah. probably, he's probably never seen anybody on drugs, he's never seen anybody mm. passed out. He's like, well, this is beyond my realm of life experience. I know a couple of drug users. <laughs> I'll go back and get him. And yeah, if it wasn't for that, he was happy to leave him to die. He has his moment later in the episode where Villa clearly hasn't been paying attention about the twin sons on Zonda. And he really just lets him have it. He, he really does. I've been thinking, if it's that hot down there, why don't you try landing on the night side? Why don't you try listening? The system has twin sons. There is no night side. I wish you wouldn't shout. Jenna accuses him of not caring about Kelly. I don't think she's going to come out of it, Blake. She will. I don't think you care whether she does or she doesn't. One thing at a time, Jenna. As you said, he shouts at Villa. He shouts Gan down. Yeah. Um, and Avon's the one who calls him out and it says, Are you ready to go? There's nothing you can do for Kelly. Even shouting at everybody else is not going to help her. It's obvious, look, he is concerned about her, but there is also that overriding thing is, well, now we're at Zondar, so this now takes precedence. And again, we have this Blake characteristic 
where if he's not in complete control, mm. he gets very agitated. Mm. And in this case, he's not in control of what's happening to Kelly, and it is annoying him. And I think probably as well you're seeing his frustration with the fact that his first plan, let's face it, was a quite an embarrassing failure. Yes, it was. And Avon is at great pains to make sure it's Blake's failure, not their failure. <laughs> Now, Richard, you wanted to mention a couple of other characters. Well, I had a few notes about some of the others. We'll cover this perhaps more maybe in the Gan Watch segment, but Gan actually gets to be the moral one here. He has a conscience about what they're doing and how being engaged with the Terra Nostra really is not the right thing to do because they're pushers, they're pimps, they're standover men. They are people who trade on human misery. Yes, and I think it's an example of Gan has convinced himself that morally Blake is in the right Mm. and therefore he sees Blake as a moral character. Mm. And I think more than anything, it's his concern that this corrupts Blake than anything else. Yes, and it is a case, it's not just sort of a throwaway line. He has two or three goes at this during the episode. The first time when their plan fails, it's very much, well, hang on, look, we just got away from them. Why do you want to go back and keep going with these people? And then when Blake unveils his plan about they're going to try and control the source of shadow on Zondar, well, hang on. If you give them the drug in return for their, that, that makes us push it. And, and to be honest, it's really only when Jenna overtly sides with Blake that this is too good an opportunity to pass up that he backs down. Which is interesting because we get a little bit of backstory from Jenna here as well. Mm. It's implied that Largo is the person who turned her into security forces. Yes. It's certainly very clear she had a dealing with him when she was a smuggler. He said, can you trade some cargo? She's, yep, cool, what is it? He said it's Shadow, and she's like, no, no sorry, not involved in that. Well, she has obviously got a conscience and at least some a moral streak. Avon sort of says, oh, well, that was very wise because it's a mandatory death penalty for possession. And she said that wasn't the reason. No. And clearly she did turn them down because when she's caught, she isn't executed. She is sent to Zappa. We've sort of talked about Villa, obviously, and his desire to go to Space City. We've talked about Blake being really a middle-class revolutionary. Villa is actually quite across that sort of idea that Blake is an alpha grade probably never associated with Delta sort of service grades in yes. his life. These are the people he purports to represent, the great oppressed masses. You know, he really doesn't know them. No, he wouldn't know a Terra Nostra member if they came and had dinner with him. Whereas he, Villa, grew up as a Delta grade, and obviously his thieving skills are his method of surviving in that sort of environment. Do you think here Villa actually does care about Blake's plan, or is it purely an excuse to go to the city of Sin? Oh, well, I think the minute he gets across there, he's obviously straight into whatever entertainment, in inverted commas, it is he wants to partake in. Yeah, and I kind of wonder whether, had Blake taken him across, he would have played Blake's game and then be, look, before we go, yes. um, I just want to check out a few things down here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Which, of course, lastly leaves Avon. Now, Avon is quite ambiguous here. He... Initially, it's very clear that, look, he doesn't think Blake's plan is going to work. He doesn't have any moral objections to working with the Terra Nostra. Um, He just thinks it's a stupid plan. Yes, he just thinks Blake's plan is stupid. But he does call Blake out that, really, there is a very, very subtle distinction between using them and actually engaging with them that's actually rather lost on him, really. Mm. But you kind of get the impression, the way he reacts to Hannah, particularly during the episode... Avon has a very hard line, clearly, on drugs. It is really a case if you're weak enough or stupid enough to want to mess with something like Shadow, well, really, you deserve everything you get. Yes, you've basically committed suicide by taking this. Why should I value you? Yes. 
I don't think he would buy into that current discussion about you know drug use being a medical problem or a social problem rather than a criminal <laughs> one. <laughs> no, he clearly they're has... just all stupid as far as he's concerned. Yes, and again, his engagement with Blake here is very much look. I think what you're doing is stupid. I think what you're doing is naive. But so long as I'm not really at risk, I'll just let you play your game. And in fact, I wonder if this is one of those examples of Avon letting Blake fail. By letting Blake come up with these stupid plans and failing, Avon is really enhancing his own position because he's the one who said it wouldn't work. And I referred earlier to that excellent scene where they're doing the negotiation with Largo. And again, the way that Avon plays it is very much... I've given this a red-hot go, mm. and if I couldn't pull this off, it can't be done. And you know what? I said this from the start. Yep. So, to bring the discussion to a conclusion before we move to our regular segments, one of the key things that we find here is that it is the President's security force that is actually protecting Zonda, mm. which shows that the President actually runs the whole shadow operation, and they have that conversation about to have total control, you must control totally yes. both sides of the law. It's something that... Babylon 5 actually will pick up on mm. again in 20 years' time, just to bring us yep. back to the JMS reference we had at the start. And that idea that something like the Terra Nostra could operate in a society as tightly controlled as mm. the Federation is, when you think about it, perhaps isn't that credible. And so it, it is a good explanation. Uh, Blake dropping Beck off. Look, I get that Blake can't keep Beck around because he's only contracted for one episode. <laughs> and so we need to get rid of him. But this, I'll come back for you in three years' time, and yeah, I expect I, you to have done something. Like, what? what's Beck going to do? Yeah, I mean, go back and probably be killed by the Enforcer. Yeah, um, or I suspect he's going to go back, bribe his way through into that shuttle, and just go get a transport out of there. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, yeah, look, that is just one of those television moments, I guess. So the final point that I just want to make about the plot is that the very last scene we have is Blake generously lets Beck push the control you know, to avenge mm. his sister's death, but yep. we don't actually get to see it happen. We see him leading towards it, and yes. then, then cut to credits, which <laughs> I don't know whether it was a time thing or a stylistic thing, but it's it's a little it bit a of bit. a jarring ending. They've had the thing where the Federation have launched the pursuit ships or whatever, mm. and they're obviously on a time thing. But yeah, you're right, he just sort of reaches towards the button and that's the end of it. And again, I don't mind it because it's a very well-written, very fun episode, but yep. if you're looking for that space adventure, and you have thought this is a very talk-heavy episode, mm. you're like, well, cool, at least we'll get one last shot of... No, no, no right, lasers, no, no, no ships blowing up. Okay, we'll just um, we'll just go then. <laughs> Before we go into our regular segments, just a couple of quick production notes. The first draft of the script apparently had Callie actually taking Shadow, which boosted her powers and gave her the strength to fight the entity. And we're going to have our third Babylon 5 reference here when we mention Jakar in Dust to Dust. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and the whole thing is she doesn't become addicted because she's an alien, so it affects her differently, but that was obviously dropped. I think it would have been a step too far for the BBC to have a good guy yep. taking drugs. Yes, and you notice that uh, Beck or Carl Hellman misses his cue when they're talking about Villa's hangover. He has the line, with what you drank, you're lucky to remember who you are. You notice he actually tries to come in a line or two earlier and then sort of sits here and does a... Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, okay. and then I has his real cue in a minute or two later. All right, well, with that, we will move into our regular segments. So I said earlier we have a really good guest cast here, and mm-hmm. we do have a really good guest cast yes, here. Yes, we do. The first one would have to be Carl Hellman as Beck. Not very famous when he does this, but seven years later, he becomes a household name. Yes, with Brushstrokes. Yes, yes. he plays Jacko in Brushstrokes from 1986 to 1991. A 
big cult sitcom. Yeah, it was, years. and I do remember it being quite popular here too. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. with the um, Dexys Midnight Runners, Runners theme. Yes, that's right. Thanks to you, these things I do because of you. I actually didn't say that on the first film, but I remember the repeats of that. And that that was something I can remember, like my parents and my aunts being like, we have to go back and watch Brushstrokes. He really, if you look at his resume, he has guest roles in a lot of quite well-known series. He's in a couple of episodes of Man About the House. He's in The Sweeney's, in The Professionals. He's in A Fine Romance. Yes, he plays Terry in that. He's probably most, well, his most enduring role is 143 episodes of EastEnders as yes. Andrew Buster Briggs. But lots of other roles dating back to his very first role, which was as first homosexual lover in the Canterbury Tales in 1972. Right. <laughs> that is his actual reference on the database, yeah. That's his credit. That's yeah. his credit, yeah. Well, of course, playing alongside Beck, does the script actually explicitly say she's his sister? I certainly assumed they were. I don't know if it yes. says. Yes. I don't, I don't know if it actually explicitly says, but obviously is Hannah, who is played by Adrienne Burgess. Now, she's actually Australian. Oh, okay. Although I don't think she ever really worked here as an actress, and... Really, her career now has moved totally away from acting. She's now a writer and she's an expert and a policy advisor on family issues in the UK and specifically, I think, the role of fathers in sort of the family unit. There you go. Yeah, she moved completely away from acting. But she had been in Doctor Who? Yes, not all that long before this. No, and indeed with Michael Keating. Yes. Yes, she plays Veet in The Sunmakers. Probably one of her bigger roles is Catherine Dickens in The Dickens of London in 1976. Right. She's in an episode of Space 1979 <laughs> as the revered one. Right. She's in Grange Hill, she's in The Bill, but no real big sort of starring roles. No. As I said, having had a bit of a look at her bio, I think acting was very much a secondary career. Yeah, I think so. Derek Smith plays Largo, another person here with just masses of credits. They go right back to 1960. Mm -hmm. uh, he was Norman in The Guardians in 1971. He turned up in The Adventures of Black Beauty, Are You Being Served? He does a rumpole. He's Geppetto in the 1978 TV Pinocchio, which was a right. big production. Mm -hmm. He's in Bergerac. Yep. And he was also in Doctor Who. He plays the doorman in Human Nature. Oh, so in the modern Doctor Who. Yes, the yeah. modern Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> Again, no sort of really big recurring roles, but regular work for 40, 50 years. Yeah, he's also got quite a bit of RSC work on the resume as well. So clearly, very accomplished actor. Yeah, very much so. So just quickly, we have two other characters. We won't mention them in great detail. Playing the chairman, we have Vernon Dobschev. Yep. If I got that wrong, I apologise. Again, he has worked from 1963 and he's still working. Mm -hmm. Heaps of credits there. But I'll note two important genre ones. He plays the scientist in The War Games, the Doctor Who story. Right. And he is actually in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Right. He plays the butler, or a character called Butler. I'm not sure which. Right. Apparently, he had an autograph book that he used to take around every production he worked on. He would get all the cast and everything to sign it. Oh, wow. And apparently, yeah, he had this amazing collection of autographs when he came on to Blake 7. He got all the crew to sign that. But apparently, yeah, he just had this amazing collection of autographs right across his career. Wow, I wonder what happened to that. Mm. And somebody who had less of a long career was Archie Two, who plays the Enforcer. But he was in a couple of very big and prestigious dramas. He's in A Horseman Riding By, oh, yeah. To Serve Them All My Days with John Dutton. Yep. And his probably bigger role is in The Legend of King Arthur, where he has a big recurring role. Same time he was doing this. Okay. But yeah, look, 
this is a really good guest cast. Yes, it and, is. And it just shows where the production team is and mm-hmm. they're getting this sort of a cast. Yep. We'll now move on to, look, it was the 1970s. I've got a few points to make here, but look, the big one we have to talk about is obviously the Terra Nostra is, of course, a very subtle substitution for the Cosa Nostra. Yes. Which is the Sicilian Marfa. Now, literally translated Terra Nostra is our land, but mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's anything more than just a space version of no, Cosa Nostra. So just to look at a bit of the background here, I mean, there's no doubt the Mafia was very much in the popular culture at this time. Yes. If you go back to the early 1970s, that's when you had the big second Mafia war. That's when Luciani Legio was the boss of the Corleone clan, yep. um, very much trying to dominate the narcotics trade at that time, so you can see where that was referenced. Right. He was jailed in 1974. And in 77, not long before this was done, Galtano Badalamenti is expelled from there on you know these trumped-up charges and it's sort of this internal... Right. Wars that very much made, and again, he was hiding drug revenues, and it was all yep. about their drug okay. controls. And probably what made the news in a big way was in 78, the assassination of Francesco Madonia, who was another clan leader. Right. And so very much part of the popular culture at the moment, and indeed in popular culture. Yes, well, and I was about to say, also impacting this is 1972 and 1974 are The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2. There's the factual stuff going on, but I think the two movies obviously imprint the popularised image, perhaps, of the Mafia on the public consciousness. Yeah, and indeed we see the goodies do the goody father at about the same time. Yes, and I suppose given this is a drugs story, Doctor Who obviously would do its version of a drug story probably a little later this year when we get to the Nightmare of Eden. Yes, arguably with a little less success. Yes, perhaps. (laughs) Which brings me to my other factual point. 1971 is when Britain passes the Misuse of Drugs Act. Right. Now, anybody who's watched any British cop shows or procedurals or anything has heard about you know class a drugs or class Mm -hmm. c drugs so 71 is when that system is brought in and that's really the big official politicization of drug control Mm -hmm. before that they might have sort of outlawed a little bit here or there's the the talk about pot and all the rest of it but this is where they say we are not having drugs these are class a drugs these are the penalties the police force will be taking them out and it actually makes it a really big political issue which again Mm -hmm. feeds into what's going on there on a couple of lighter notes In a little bit of uh, reusing material, I'm fairly sure that the model corridor here is a redress of the model corridor from Doctor Who and the Stones of Blood, (laughs) which is a very good corridor, so don't mind. We mentioned earlier the uh, Callie in Prison in Her Mind graphics. Look, they do the job, but they're very simple. Well, they are. They're very late 70s. And just a couple of sort of plot points here. Villa finds Orak and Callie lying in a corridor after they've had this big search for them. So either... They just forgot that they had that search and they just put them there. Or the Liberator's really, really big, I'm not sure which. There was additional material shot for the scenes where Callie's looking for Orak and Blake's ordering her back to the flight deck, which were cut during the edit. So whether that explains the fact that Orak is just suddenly sitting on the floor... Okay, and we did mention the terrible fake sun backdrop down on Zonda. <laughs> that, that is pretty bad. So Liberator Databank, I want to have a bit of a chat here about Orak. Now... It's just mentioned in passing dialogue where we know Orak can operate the teleport. Yes. So obviously this was established sometime between Redemption and now. And again, we don't bore ourselves down with a big, oh, we've discovered that Orak can operate the teleport. It's just something they've discovered. Yes, just just a throwaway line. Now, of course, I guess staying with Orak, at the end of the episode, once they've had the discussion about it, was Orak's carrier beam that allowed the entity to attempt to cross over and whatever. And we also make it clear that because Orak has no consciousness... Yes. He doesn't exist and he's not telepathic. He yes, just... he doesn't actually detect that that was what was going no, on. No, his Wi-Fi just goes through there. Yes. The episode ends with Avon actually placing a disruptive bomb. 
inside ORAC. So, and they make the point that it operates within a very specific energy range, and obviously if it fluctuates too much from that, it'll be a very satisfying explosion. <laughs> and what this does is it allows us to understand better what ORAC actually is. Mm. And again, Avon makes very clear ORAC is a computer. Yes. It's just Ensor's vanity that it's anything other than that. And it is very much a case when they're debating exactly what's happened to Cali. Avon is very clear, well, it can't be ORAC. ORAC is just a machine and machines can't lie. And all of this again shows that the crew still do not trust ORAC. Mm. And again, when this comes at the end of a ongoing thread, we've had Deliverance, ORAC Redemption, and now Shadow, it really is quite an ORAC arc. It is. Speaking of arcs, yes. it's time for Ganwatch. Yes. Who actually has a lot to do. Yes, he does this week. He has the moral objection to dealing with the Terra Nostra, but it's not just a throwaway line really just to give him something to say. He keeps coming back to this point. No, he is actually the moral voice of the audience in this. Yes. And then in the second half, when everybody else is down on Zonda, he's not just left on the ship and he's not just sitting by the teleport mm. bay. He actually is in command. He's in that centre deck thing. Yep. He's telling Villa what to do. He's giving Beck and Hannah advice. Yes. He is actually in control. Yeah, he really does take centre stage in that part of the episode. Yes, and this is probably the best use of Gan we actually get since probably Cygnus Alpha. Yeah, probably. And again, as we've said consistently, when he is given something to do, David Jackson is really good. And maybe it makes the point that it takes Chris Boucher to give him something to do, Mm. and Terry Nation perhaps had just written him off. Yeah, well, I think so. And we then come to... What cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? Well, I thought he had some great dialogue this week. So we'll give a few examples each. I'll start with the bit where Gan apologises and he says, Sorry, Avon, that makes all the difference. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how they spotted him. Yeah. <laughs> I did have one note there about the line where Gan comes in and he says, oh, I couldn't find Orac. I even tried calling his name. Yes, and Paul Darrow has great fun with the response. Oh, I'm sorry I missed that. It's the kind of natural stupidity no amount of training could ever hope to match. I think we did call this out in... I think it was actually in ORAC. You do wonder why Gan really doesn't actually just <laughs> smash Avon just to shut him up. But it is a great comeback. It is. I like Avon's line back to the Terra Nostra. Your professional simplicity is beginning to irritate me. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and I must admit the Enforcer actually gets a good comeback there. He says it's only going to be a temporary inconvenience. <laughs> Where Blake decides that they're now going to take on the Terra Nostra as well. Where he just sits there and he just says... Lawmakers, lawbreakers, let us fight them all. Why not? <laughs> yes, and he's put down to Villa, and it wouldn't be a good segment without a put down to Villa, where Beck says about Villa, with what you drank, you're lucky to remember who you are. I wouldn't call that lucky. <laughs> or indeed, at the end, where he gets to do the really deadpan, where they say, we're all the good guys. You could be looking at them. What a depressing thought. <laughs> And as we said, the scene when he's down, obviously, on the planet Quarry, after he dispatches the guard, he is clearly very pleased with himself. <laughs> yes, very, very much so. We're seeing a whole extra level here in Chris Boucher and yep. Paul Darrow just getting on very, very well. A couple others I had that I thought were quite sparkling dialogue, where they're looking at Space City and Gan says, very pretty. And <laughs> comes back, I know, and the piloting wasn't bad either. <laughs> Then, of course, there's the line about the frying eyeballs. Yes, very daintily put. Yes, when they're down on Zonda. <laughs> yeah, no, it is a really well-written episode. Yeah, there is. There's a lot of great lines in this. So, Richard. Yes. Who's your player of the week this week? I don't know whether this is going to be a snap, but I actually went for Chris Boucher. No? No, I got very close, but um, Yeah, no. I actually went for Chris Boucher. 
and probably for the reasons we said at the start, I think this is the moment where the series does start to change direction. And it is now Chris Boucher starting to drive how the series will progress from here. And look, it's a really good script, as we've just spent several minutes talking about. I mean, there's maybe a bit too much going on, but I think this is a very confident move away from sort of Terry Nation calling the shots. No, I agree. I definitely considered giving Chris Boucher the prize here. I also considered Paul Darrow because yep. he goes very well, but I think most of the good Paul Darrow stuff is actually Chris Boucher. Yes, it is. I'm going to go for Derek Smith as Largo. Okay. Because I, I just think he's a really good character. He really holds this episode together, and he is the start of a run of very memorable characters who isn't Serverland and a really cool villain. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to give yeah, him Derek no, Smith. Yeah, no, I can see why. I thought he was great. So look, we've had a lot of fun talking about this. Mm-hmm. It's been good to talk about something different to Terry Nation. Yep. And look, I think this is going to be the start of a very positive direction for Blake Seven. Yeah. So we will be back next episode with Weapon. Mm-mm. Won't that be interesting? That is going to be a very interesting discussion. But until then, I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Set course for the planet of the Clone Masters. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. Could be looking at them. What a very depressing thought.